0: Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmanuel.org. We rely on the generosity of our listeners to sustain this ministry and the message of the coming kingdom of heaven. Please consider making a donation to Beth Emanuel by clicking on the Donate tab at BethEmanuel.org. I've been thinking about the Torah portion this week, and I'd like to share a few of those thoughts. At the end of last week's Torah portion, the cloud of glory covered the tent of meeting and the Torah says, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Imagine what it would be like to experience God's manifest presence to such an extent. I mean, what if God's presence entered, entered our synagogue so powerfully that the immense weight of his glory made it physically impossible for you to get through the front door. An experience like that would surely inspire a healthy dose of the fear of the Lord. That is, the conviction that God exists, is present, punishes sin, and rewards righteousness. The fear of the Lord. Who would dare draw near to such a God? That's kind of the question David poses as he considers What's going to happen if he builds a dwelling place for the Lord? David's heart yearned to build a house for the Lord, but God did not allow it. The prophet Nathan said that Solomon would be the one to build the temple. David could only dream about it. Solomon explained, it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. What does it mean it was in the heart of David? That means that David was thinking about it all the time. He selected the location for the temple and purchased the property. He stored up building materials. He set aside money for the project. He drew up plans. He composed psalms and liturgies. He organized the Levites. He divided the priesthood into courses for the for the services in the future temple. He made every possible preparation. His heart sighed over the thought of basking in the presence of God. He prayed, Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. He said, One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. What could be better than being in the presence of God. But David could see, he could foresee, a potential problem with this plan. He knew from the Torah that when Moses built the tabernacle, no one could enter the glory of God's presence. Would the same thing happen in Jerusalem? David asked, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Psalm 15 By inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Lord replied, Psalm 15 lists 11 qualities of a person worthy to enter God's presence in his holy house. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. That's Psalm 15. The person deemed worthy to abide in God's presence lives a life of integrity. There's no phoniness or pretending here. This person speaks the truth in his heart, that is, in his head. It means he's honest with himself, neither fooling himself by blaming others for his own shortcomings nor mentally rationalizing his or her bad behavior. The person worthy of entering God's presence guards his tongue, avoiding evil speech about others. He doesn't flatter the wicked or approve of sin, But he does show honor to those who fear the Lord. He doesn't take financial advantage of others. He doesn't make money more important than people. And his integrity cannot be bought with a bribe. That's the kind of person who can abide in God's tent and dwell on his holy hill. In yet another psalm, the Lord replies, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, And who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and sworn deceitfully. Again, the emphasis here is on integrity. One who has clean hands and a pure heart refers to the inner behavior and the outer behavior of a person. In the Hebrew Bible, hands refer to the realm of deeds and actions. But the heart refers to the mind, the thought life. It's not just what we do on the outside. It's what's going on inside the head too. God sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. First Samuel 16.7 The clean hands are clean because the person is kept from sinning. The pure heart is pure because the person has guarded his or her mind. Taken all together, the qualities add up to thought, speech, and deed, the three garments of the soul. David was right to worry about the problem of entering the temple. When Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem and brought the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies, the presence of the Lord filled the sanctuary. The cloud cloud filled the house of the Lord, so the priests could not stand because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, it says. They fell prostrate before the presence of the Lord, and then they asked themselves, who may enter the presence of this holy God? The presence of God in our lives should impact our thoughts, our speech, and our deeds. If God was in the room with me, would I do that thing, say those words, or even think that way? At the beginning of the book of Leviticus, God is in the room. Leviticus begins with the words, And the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. And he explained that someone wanting to draw near to his presence within the tabernacle should bring a korban. We translate the Hebrew word korban as sacrifice or offering, but the verbal root of the word means to draw near, so it's, it's better understood as something brought near. In other words, a gift. Because in the ancient world, you didn't enter the king's palace empty-handed. If you were to appear before the king, you had to bring a gift or some form of tribute. To appear before a king without an appropriate gift would have been a real insult to majesty. How much more so for one appearing before the king of the universe? The Lord says, none shall appear before me empty-handed. Exodus 23.15 But what do you get for the God who already has everything? What kind of gift? David mused, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. The Lord explained to Moses, when any man of you brings a korban to the Lord, you shall bring your korban of animals from the herd or the flock. And the rest of our Torah portion goes on to describe the types of korbanot, the types of gifts that people might bring in order to draw near to God in his sanctuary and enjoy his presence, burnt offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, and bread offerings. The biblical, the biblical sacrifices were never intended as penalties for sin. They're supposed to be gifts for the divine king. But if that's the case, What does it mean when the Torah says regarding the burnt offering, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. For what sin does the burnt offering atone? Some of the sacrifices, such as the sin offerings and guilt offerings, were brought by people who had committed specific sins. Burnt offerings, however, aren't supposed to be associated with any particular sin. The whole idea of a burnt offering is that it's totally surrendered to God. The person offering a burnt offering doesn't expect to receive any benefits or kickbacks. The whole animal is burned up on the altar. It symbolizes a total abandonment to God. But the rabbis found a different explanation for burnt offerings in the book of Job. Job used to offer burnt offerings on behalf of his ten adult children. He had seven sons and three daughters, and like any godly parent, he kept them in prayer. He knew that his children all liked to get together for a big family celebration. His seven sons would invite over the three sisters, and the feasting went on for several days. The revelry included plenty of alcohol, and that's what worried Job the most. He worried that under the influence of alcohol, his children might have sinned in their hearts. He wasn't concerned that they might have committed some indecent act. He wasn't afraid that they might have said something inappropriate. He worried about what might be going on inside their heads. He worried that, while drunk, they might have had some sinful or blasphemous thoughts. So it says in Job 1 verse 5, When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Likewise, the Lord rebuked Job's three friends for their thoughts about Job and their ideas about God. When Job's friends saw his suffering, they assumed that Job must have committed some serious sin because God would never let suffering befall the righteous. They shared their thoughts with Job. And The Lord expressed his great displeasure with their folly and he told them to offer seven bulls and seven rams as burnt offerings for thinking such things. He said, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job will pray for you for i will accept him so that i may not do with you according to your folly because you have spoken of me what is you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant job has this is job 42 so the sages deduce from these instances that burnt offerings could be considered an atonement for sins committed in the heart remember that biblical hebrew uses the word heart the way we use the word mind. The sages inferred that unlike a sin offering, unlike sin offerings and guilt offerings, which pertain to actual deeds committed by a person or words spoken by a person, a burnt offering pertains to a person's thoughts, the inner state of a person. We tend to think that what goes on inside our heads is our own private business. A human court of law can't hold us accountable for our thoughts. That's why it's possible to look religious and righteous on the outside while harboring all sorts of sinful thoughts inside our heads. But the Lord knows the thoughts of man. You understand my thought from afar. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Psalm 139 says, The teaching of Yeshua focused on addressing the inner thought life. He warned his disciples that one who feels hatred commits murder in the heart and one who harbors lustful fantasies commits mental adultery. Sin first takes shape in the mind and a person's sinful thoughts are defiling from within. Out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Mark 7:21 21-23 Yeshua taught that the pure in heart will see God. The inverse implies that the defiled in heart do not see God. The spiritual essence of a person only intersects physicality in the sphere of the mind where thought, awareness, and simple being exist. Likewise, since God has no form and no body but is completely spirit, We experience him primarily on the level of our minds through wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Solomon's book of wisdom explains how sinful thoughts separate us from God's presence. Wisdom, chapter 1, verses 3 to 5 says, perverse thoughts separate people from God. The Holy Spirit of instruction flees from deceit, recoils from thoughts that are without understanding, and does not abide when unrighteousness enters. If we want to practice the presence of God and genuinely cultivate the fear of the Lord in our lives, it's going to have to happen in the world of thought. Sinful thoughts, which separate us from God's presence, will thwart those efforts. This is why King David prayed, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Taking control of the thoughts is fundamental to real repentance. The prophet Isaiah said, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, For he will abundantly pardon, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. The sages taught that the burnt offering symbolizes the purging and purifying of the mind. The Hebrew word olah, translated as burnt offering, literally means that which rises. Some translations call it an elevation offering. It's called an olah because the entire sacrifice rises to heaven in heat and smoke. It rises into the sky and comes before God as a pleasing aroma. Likewise, the Lord tells the wicked to forsake his unrighteous thoughts and elevate his thoughts toward godliness. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. The sacrificial rules in Jewish law emphasize the importance of what you're thinking about. The rules said that having the wrong thoughts while slaughtering an animal for sacrifice could invalidate it. If a person was supposed to be slaughtering an animal for one type of sacrifice, but forgot about that and mixed it up in his head with another type of sacrifice, that confusion alone invalidates the sacrifice. For example, if he was supposed to be sacrificing a burnt offering, but at the moment of slaughter, he was thinking, This is a peace offering I'm slaughtering here. His thoughts make the sacrifice unfit for a proper burnt offering. We lose our fear of the Lord when we forget about God. And we forget about God when we allow our thoughts to wander away from him. Solomon warned people against offering the sacrifice of fools. In Ecclesiastes 5, he says, Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. Draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. The fool enters God's presence carelessly, chattering away, hasty in word or impulsive in thought. Such a person forgets he is in God's presence. The fool has no notion he's doing anything wrong at all, but he's offering the sacrifice of fools. Yeshua's teaching about repentance and the way to the kingdom emphasized that it's not sufficient to rely on ceremony, religious doctrines, and pious pretense. He said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And he went on to give us a series of examples that we call the Sermon on the Mount. It included warnings about sins committed inside the heart. He spoke about anger, hatred, lust, unforgiveness, pride, haughtiness, resentments, greed, self-righteousness, selfishness, prejudice, bigotry, duplicity, false oaths, judgmentalism, and self-deception. In other words, The straight and narrow path described by Yeshua, the path that leads to life, cuts through the head. In view of Yeshua's emphasis on one's inner mental state, it's not surprising to find the same themes appearing in the teachings of the apostles. For example, Paul speaks of the mind as a battlefield. He tells us to lay siege to our own minds like like an army laying siege to a city. We are to treat our thoughts like enemy soldiers. We are to take them captive as prisoners of war and force them into obedience to the Messiah. 2 Corinthians 10 says, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of the Messiah. This teaching shows, shows us that we are not Our thoughts. The fact that we are even aware of our thoughts demonstrates that we are not our thoughts. Instead, we observe our thoughts happening, playing across our mind, not unlike a person listening to a radio show or watching a movie. It's possible to get so engrossed in a good movie or book that you forget yourself, and we do the same thing with our thoughts. We forget we are not our thoughts. We are the observer of the thoughts, and that means we don't we don't need to be ruled by them. Instead, we can rule them. Our spirits come from a realm that is higher, higher than human thoughts, and we can take control of our thoughts. The Bible warns us sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Likewise, we must master our thoughts. King Solomon uses a similar metaphor to describe the battle with the mind. He says that an uncontrolled mind is like an unwalled city. There's no way to defend it. Such a person is at the mercy of his or her shifting moods and thoughts. Proverbs 25 verse 28 says, Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. Living as a slave to one's thoughts makes for an unhappy life if we don't take charge of them they take charge of us that's also the reason we find it difficult to keep our resolutions to improve or to stick with a plan the resolutions only last so long as our thoughts agree with the resolve as soon as our thoughts shift our resolutions dissolve along with them but the spirit is not supposed to be under the control of our thoughts instead we need to take control of our thoughts rejecting those that are wrong Supporting those that are right, and taking all of them captive in the service of the Messiah. Paul says, Present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service and worship, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The disciples of Yeshua in Rome lived far away from the temple in Jerusalem. The Torah prohibits making sacrifices outside of Jerusalem, so their disciples in Rome could not bring burnt offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, or bread offerings to the altar of God, but they could still engage in a spiritual service of worship by worshiping God in spirit and truth. Picture your mind as a burnt offering laid out on the altar fires. Purged in the heat of the flame, it undergoes a transformation. The impurities are burned away until all that remains rises to heaven, like the smoke from a burnt offering ascending before the Lord as a pleasing aroma. Although God is in heaven and you are on earth, and his thoughts are higher than your thoughts as the heavens are higher than the earth, the burnt offering transforms the earthly and lifts it to the heavenly realms. And that's why it's called an olah. That which rises. The spiritual service of worship requires a spiritual transformation through the renewing of the mind. How do we renew our minds? On the one hand, it's the responsibility of every individual disciple to take every thought captive, thrust away every unworthy thought with both hands, and thus making a new heart and a new spirit. As it says in Ezekiel eighteen thirty-one, cast away from you all your transgressions, which you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. On the other hand, that's the work of the spirit of God who creates a new heart within the redeemed. As it says in Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Our Torah portion is all about the burnt offerings and sacrifices. But Yeshua says, there's no greater commandment than this, to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength. This is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's what I was thinking too. Take on my yoke and learn from me. for your soul